years, I never told anyone. I felt really alone. I was ashamed. I decided to take a risk. My heart was pounding. I finally spoke up. I'm not the only one. I'm no longer afraid to be who I am. This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. We've been off the air for the summer, and I'm thrilled to be back with some new ideas that I want to try out over the coming year. And the first is to invite you to contact us if you have a similar story to the subject we're covering today that you'd like to tell, or one that the guest inspires you to tell, perhaps for the first time. So if you have such a story, please email me at drann@safespaceradio.com. We would love to hear from you. This month's series is on the untold stories of dementia, how we live with it in our loved ones, and how we live with the fear of getting it ourselves. So today is the first in this series on dementia, and I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Pauline Boss about the ambiguous loss of dementia. The loss is ambiguous because it can feel as if the person is sometimes here and sometimes not here, even at the same time, and that makes the loss very complicated. Dr. Pauline Boss is Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota, and she's a therapist in private practice. She's the author of two books, Ambiguous Loss, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief, and her most recent book, Loving Someone Who Has Dementia, in which she describes proven strategies for managing the ongoing stress and grief while caring for someone who has dementia. Welcome to Safe Space, Pauline. Thank you. So I know that you came to this work on dementia through a kind of much larger idea about ambiguous losses uh, in so many other ways. Why don't we start by having you tell me more about what is an ambiguous loss and what makes it so difficult? Well, an ambiguous loss is simply a loss that remains unclear. It's a loss that has no closure uh, because of that. Um, There are two kinds of ambiguous loss. Um, The first kind is when someone goes physically missing. So my first uh, research uh, was on families of the soldiers missing in action in Vietnam in the 70s. Um, And then in the 80s, uh, my research turned to the second kind of ambiguous loss, and that is where the mind is missing, but the body is still here. Since then, um, I have continued over these decades um, working with families of either kind of ambiguous loss, but the one that's burgeoning, um, almost epidemic levels, is the one that has to do with a loved one who is here but not here due to Alzheimer's disease or one of the um, almost 50 other kinds of dementia. The person is present in the home or nearby, you know where they are in body, but in, in their mind, uh, their memory is fading, their cognitive abilities might be fading, and they may not even know you anymore. Yes, and even even the way you describe it when you say, you know, their mind is gone, but their body is present, I find it's it's so confusing because we equate the person with the mind, and so it can seem as if the mind being gone, as if the whole person is gone, and yet... In my experience with people with dementia, it's it's even more confusing than that because something of their selfness seems to remain even though their mind is gone 
And so it starts making you think about, well, what is the self separate from the mind? And even that gets confusing. It's extremely uh, confusing for families. Through no fault of their own, it becomes a complicated uh, loss and therefore a complicated grief, uh, and one that could go on for years. Um, You're right that it seems like the person is still there, and occasionally um, family members tell me there are flickers where they come back as they once were, fully cognizant uh, and fully present, and it may just be for 60 seconds, and then they're gone again. And these uh, flickers back to where this person used to be is what keeps people uh, confused even more. That is, they, they both love that happening, and it also hurts them because then they think um, maybe maybe dad or my my loved one isn't isn't really sick i may be doing something wrong and uh, look he was just back and so it adds to the confusion even though they find those moments joyful that's really true i think that so there's an ambiguity not only kind of at baseline but then there's this intermittency of the person being there and then gone and being there and yes. gone. and the ambiguity causes ambivalence. Uh, and the ambivalence, of course, is loaded with guilt. Uh, you're both happy this happened and you also um, um, are more confused because it happens. So it has a good and a bad side. Yeah, so let's talk more about that, about the ambivalence. You know, so there's people have very mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, it's joyous. On the one hand, they feel sort of more torn about it. Um, how, tell me about how that's linked to guilt. What do you mean by that? Well, when someone in your life is partially here and partially gone, and you can't figure out what's going on, the ambivalence manifests itself in mixed emotions. For example, you you love this person, but there are moments when you hate them. And Many uh, caregivers, for example, who have been at it for many, many years, uh, will will say in confidence, I wish it were over. Uh, and that creates guilt because what they're really saying is, um, <clears throat> I wish my loved one would die. So it would be a clear-cut loss instead of this confusion. I'm working with this ambiguity. And when people have thoughts like that, and we all have Uh, I think they're very normal. Uh, It's normal to have the thought, but not to act on it, by the way. Uh, And so guilt follows that kind of um, the negative side of ambivalence. And we need to um, have caregivers and family members talk talk with other people so that they don't feel uh, that they need to carry the guilt. It's such a terrible feeling for the caregiver to have these moments when you realize that you do hate the person temporarily or part of you does or that you wish for their death is such a hard thing to bear. And here is what I say to people like that, that having that feeling is quite normal. In fact, you may, underlying it all, may be some compassion for the person with the illness that you wish their suffering were over. The thing we cannot do is act on it because that leads to abuse and violence, we have to not act on our ambivalence. We have to uh, be able to carry the idea that our loved one is all right, in fact, frequently with 
dementia, they are not suffering as much as the caregiver is. And that may be why caregivers die at a rate 63% higher than their same age group. Really? We need to pay attention to caregivers so that they stay healthy uh, because they have a long journey ahead of them with this uh, confusing illness, this stress and anxiety that is a a normal outcome of it, and the sadness, um, not necessarily depression, but a sadness of grieving that comes sometimes for a decade or as long as they are witnessing their loved one fade away. We need to understand that they are grieving along the way um, and that that is normal. Uh, so then we get into the issues about grief, which, which says you need to get over it in two to six months or now even faster before it becomes um, a medical problem. All of that does not apply to caregivers. Um, indeed, uh, a percentage may need medical attention if they have a true depression. Uh, where they can't get out of bed in the daytime, they can't function, they may be suicidal, they may be addicted, um, they they just can't function. That would need a doctor's attention. But most of the caregivers are simply sad and grieving. And the the, um, intervention for that is human connection, not a pill. I I feel like in my profession, I'm a psychiatrist, I feel like we could hear that again and again and again, the the power and importance of what you just said. Yes, we we need to have psychiatrists and physicians to take care of that smaller percentage of people who truly are depressed and need some medical attention in order to function. But right now, my feeling is that everybody is lumped into the same category, that if you are sad, that means you are depressed. And those two ideas are very different. One is normal and one and needs human connection. It needs someone to go out to dinner with, to talk with. The other one needs medical attention. And... Um, we need to differentiate between the two. And even the ones that need medical attention, Pauline, they also need connection. Yes, yes, you're right. Human connection is essential for caregivers of any loved one who has an illness. Isolation is uh, detrimental. It's very, very harmful. And in uh, areas where, for example, dementia is stigmatized or mental illness is stigmatized, then the patient and the caregiver are left alone without human connection. Neighbors should go and visit caregivers if caregivers can't go out. Um, People from the religious institutions should make sure that a caregiver, if they want to go to uh, services, should be allowed to go to services in a way that the patient is still taken care of well. Um, And they need to go out to dinner once a week or in the house dinner once a week, but with someone else who is fully and cognitively present. Otherwise, their own cognitive abilities will go down. I am struck um, 
at how isolating dementia is. Yes. The the person who has dementia becomes pretty, you know, can become pretty bad company. They they repeat themselves again and again. They have trouble yes. with speech, so they become kind of boring <laughs> to visit. And so friends drop off, and then people don't know how to cope. And the isolation of it is perhaps one of the hardest things, it seems to me. It's the caregiver who needs the visit. I want to read a a quote from your first book on ambiguous loss. Okay. On page 79, you write, Meaningful connections can't happen if people in the community never validate ambiguous loss as a traumatic one. And that really got my attention and it was in the context of just talking about the very thing you are now, about the importance of support and so on. And what do you mean by members of the community validating the loss as a traumatic one? Well, let's take another example first, and that is death. When there's a death in the family, everyone in the community knows what to do. We, uh, we have learned over the years or in our own culture or in our own religious uh, community what is expected of us. There are rituals where the community comes together to support the family where there is loss of death and um, to uh, honor the person who died. Now, with ambiguous loss, there is zero there is nothing like that. There is no greeting card. There is no gathering of people. There are no rituals. So the family is left on its own. And as a result, the community, uh, for the most part, has not recognized even that there is that type of loss. Uh, it's only since the uh, mid-1970s that I began publishing on this, and um, while there is now a second and third generation publishing worldwide about ambiguous loss, it's still a relatively new term. You can ask your neighbor or your pastor or your um, a town council, they probably mm-hmm. have never heard of the term. It's time they do, and it's time that they learn that the people who are experiencing ambiguous loss families where there is dementia, where there might be autism, where there might be a missing person physically, they need community support. Uh, And they need the community to say, I'm sorry, this happened to you. What can I do to help? The problem is this could go on for a lifetime where somebody is never found. But what the families tell me who have that Um, happen to them is they want other people in the community to recognize their suffering. They want other people to say, how are you and uh, how is it going and what can I do to help? Would you like to go to dinner sometime or would you like me to bring dinner in and we can watch a TV show together? It could be simple. Uh, In larger um, communities, in larger areas, societies, where, for example, war has made many, many people disappear, like the Holocaust, for example, but more recently, the genocides elsewhere. What is very helpful to communities is some kind of visible and beautiful memorial that they can touch and learn from and something that says, we validate your loss even though there was not a body to bury. 
It's very moving. I'm so struck at the power of the human need for recognition and acknowledgement. I think it is a very um, deep human need. And um, I was told by an archaeologist that in ancient days in Greece, for example, when there were battles, uh, that the most important thing was to reclaim the bodies after a battle and both sides would quit fighting. And that if bodies were not found, they had a way of burying a stone um, or some element, some symbol of that person uh, to represent them. Uh, And so the human need to know if your loved one is here or gone is very high. And we now know that uh, the neuroscientists are telling us that the brain has trouble with ambiguity. (laughs) You probably know more about that than I do. I remember being taught, Pauline, that it was a developmental achievement, the capacity to, to tolerate uncertainty. I think it is, that the tolerance for ambiguity is a developmental achievement. And that is one of the things that we work very hard on if we are forced to live with the unknowing of whether a loved one is present or absent. If you have someone in the home where you live whose mental capacities are fading and who is um, moving toward some kind of dementia, your only hope is to increase your tolerance for ambiguity. And uh, I encourage both and thinking to help with that, where you uh, keep two separate truths in your mind at the same time. My loved one is here, but they're also gone. The only thing I would add to that, you know, having read both your books, um, which I really recommend to people, you talk about this, about being able to hold both things in the mind at the same time. And the only sort of tweak that I had in my mind in response to that was, yes, to hold the the truth of there is both this loss and they are present at the same time, but as well to treat them always as if they were fully here. Yes. Because I find that... that's a good point. It feels quite important to me in observing, you know, people in nursing homes or caregivers with people with dementia or, you know, family members, some some will relate to the person as if they really are gone. They'll talk about them in front of them. No, not a good idea. Which is a, yes, which is very dehumanizing. Right. So that, it seems to me, in our behavior, while we may be holding the truth of, you know, there's truly a loss here, the importance of treating someone as if they were fully present. That's even, a very good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you now, I want to come back to something you said a few minutes ago because you really got my attention. You said, whenever we're ambivalent, it's very important not to act on it. And in particular, you know, thoughts of wishing the person could die. And I'm curious how you feel about what's going on in Oregon where physician-assisted suicide is available to families where someone has advanced dementia. And I'm curious if you know of people who, of course, had this ambivalence, as any caregiver with someone with dementia does, who did ultimately support the person to die, um, whether in fact they ended up feeling terrible about that or, you know, having acted on their ambivalence effectively, what the long-term consequences of that are for the caregivers. I think it's very, it needs to be very nuanced. For example, did the person with dementia 
um, sign that um, document that for assisted suicide when they were fully cognitively aware. Um, and if they didn't, if they were already sliding into dementia, um, then I would be very wary of whether or not they really know what they were doing. Um, so I think you'd have to have all of that straightened out as well. And I think that has to do with how then the family members will feel about it. If, mm -hmm. if they know dad or mother uh, signed this um, well before dementia set in, uh, when they were fully and cognitively aware, that's one thing that probably would create less less of a, a fallout afterwards. But if, in fact, what I see happening is that sometimes caregivers cannot tolerate the suffering that they are experiencing, and they they feel that the patient is suffering and perhaps uh, lingering uh, in a way that they're not aware of life anymore and so on. Um, I'd have to think about this longer, but my own sense right now is if my loved one is in a place where they are receiving good care, that is, they're not being hurt uh, or neglected, then it's my job as a, as a family member to get strong enough and resilient enough to, uh, to uh, accept the suffering. Um, we can't always have things go our way in life. And watching someone we care about die a slow death may be one of the lessons that we are given to strengthen our own humanity. And there are ways that people actually say that even after 15 years of watching a loved one die, they continued with their own life while they also visited this person. They, they had an active life with fully present people, but they also kept abreast and visited and touched and talked to the person who no longer knew them anymore. And to me, this seems to be um, um, a courageous choice, a choice that, from which one could grow. Um, I know there are different views of this, but I think that the... The view of assisted suicide needs to be made in our 40s when we are fully and cognitively present. If that is what we want, that's when we shouldn't make it, not when we're halfway into dementia. Mm. It's very powerful to hear you talk about that the urge for the, for the loved one, for the caregiver, may be more about not bearing their own suffering than about actually ending the suffering of the one with the illness. It cannot f feel that way in the moment. <laughs> it can feel as if it really is about the... Right. But uh, now, it's if, very powerful what you're saying to really think that it might be more about trying to relieve one's own suffering. I think it is. But let me let me make another example. If there is excruciating pain ah. the patient is <clears throat> experiencing, that's a whole other story. Uh, so that I would depend on the physician's and psychiatrists to tell me whether or not my loved one is suffering pain, uh, whether or not they are suffering, or whether they are just in this state of not knowing. And, and that would then uh, give me some guidance as to how I should respond. 
That makes sense to me. You you write also about how ambiguous loss can so much trigger feelings in a, in the caregiver of incompetence, of helplessness, uh, even of failure, and of how hard that is to bear, um, and the importance of, of finding a way toward acceptance as opposed to this ongoing struggle with feeling kind of impotent and incapable. Right. What do you think the factors are that help family members reach that place of acceptance? I think there's some cultural root to it. Um, most of us live in uh, societies that value problem solving, and we want answers to questions, and we want precise answers. We want to know that two plus two equals four. Um, what I have learned, and mostly I learned, I learned it from Native Americans here in Minnesota, is that in some cultures, they are not so sure about uh, what the right answer is, that they have more harmony with nature rather than mastery over it, and that they have, therefore, a more easy um, um, coexistence with illnesses that have no cure, like, for example, Alzheimer's disease. There is no stigma. Um, there is uh, a teamwork um, to help the the family eldest brother and eldest sister are in charge of the caregiving but all the other relatives in the tribe help uh, and it's something we can learn from um, because most of us in this more mastery oriented culture believe that it is our job to fix our loved one who has dementia and one has to change one's mind about that because you can't fix dementia. You can only make the person comfortable and you can only change your own perception of living without being able to solve the problem. And so when caregivers and family members um, are so upset, sometimes for months and years, because they can't fix grandmother or grandfather's dementia, that is like beating your head against a brick wall. <laughs> uh, it, it's useless, and it makes you feel helpless. And so the helplessness has to be dealt with cognitively by a cognitive shift. It, it has to do with you now will see this situation in a different light. It is not your fault. The culprit is the ambiguity caused by this uh, condition of dementia, which can come from so many different kinds of illnesses. It's not your fault. It is not the patient's fault either. And so you externalize the blame and you do the best you can. Um, a good enough relationship is what I called it mm -hmm. in the book. You do a good enough job um, you want to avoid neglect and you want to avoid abuse and um but when things get too hard what you need to do and this is not a failure is to reach for outside help either have other people come in or move your loved one to some kind of institutional care and that is doing a good job Pauline Boss, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. I, uh, I want to draw people's attention to your books. Again, they are Ambiguous Loss, 
learning to live with unresolved grief, and this most recent one, Loving Someone Who Has Dementia. Can you give me the website for that? Um, just Amazon.com. You can find it through Amazon. Great. Yes. Uh-huh. Thank you again for being my guest. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So if you have a story about dementia and the ambiguity of that loss in your life that you would like to share with us, perhaps in the hopes of helping others, please email me at drann at safespaceradio.com. And doctor would just be D-R-A-N-N-E at safespaceradio.com. And if you got to listen to part of this show and you didn't get to hear all of it, Tune into our website at www.safespaceradio.com where you can listen to it in its entirety and you can also email the link to a friend. You can subscribe to get our weekly podcast. You can download us through iTunes and like us on Facebook. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Jen Hodston for mixing the sound, and Jim Russell for consulting. Coming up next is Speak Freely.